So good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't, who don't know who, what my name is, uh, my name is Jason Foster. I am the youth leader here and also the church uh, admin. And so this morning, it's an honor to be able to speak uh, to you guys. I had a friend in middle school named Jim Bramhall. So uh, Jim Bramhall's dad was a commercial airline pilot, and he was very well off. He had one of the nicest homes in the development. And uh, being his friend, there was a lot of fringe benefits, and one of these fringe benefits was that he had a huge in-ground pool. And during the uh, summer months, during summer vacation, he would invite me over, and I'd be able to uh, swim in his pool. And Jim was a very close friend, so I kind of had, like, exclusive rights with him to swim in this ginormous pool. And, uh, I mean, we were, we were teenagers, and so we had... Uh, we were very rambunctious, we horseplayed a lot, and we would hang around his pool and like try to come up with these crazy games. I mean, we were doing all sorts of stuff, and one of these games that we played, we actually named ourselves, we called it Man Out. Every time that we got in the pool, uh, his pool cover was on, so we would have to roll it up, get it out of the way, make it safe. But Jim and I didn't want to make it safe, we wanted to have fun. And so one thing that we did was we would hop in at the end of the pool, and we would uh, take turns, and we would swim underneath the cover. How many of you people have actually done that? Have you guys swam underneath a pool cover? It's pretty cool. I mean, like, it's a little risky, but uh, so, so Jim and I, that's what we did, and we called it man out, and so both of us would get in on the shallow end. We didn't have any goggles or anything, and we would take a deep breath. We would take turns. We wouldn't do it at the same time. We would take a breath, and we would kick off the wall, and boom, we would shoot across the pool underneath the pool cover, and it was a really cool experience. But we did this with one, with one breath, and so we didn't pop our head up in the deep end. You would go to the deep end, kick off the wall, and swim back in one breath. And it sounds maybe like an easy feat to you, but again, Jim was very well off. His dad was an airline pilot, so he didn't have just like a normal size residential pool. He had a big pool. And so it, it was actually pretty hard. I mean, by the time you reached the end where you got in at, you were gasping for air. And so on this particular day, uh, you can see where the story is going. Uh, so on this particular day, Jim and I were in his pool and Jim's like, hey, Jason, let's play a man out. The cover's still on. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And so Jim goes first. It's his pool. It's his house. And so he takes his deep breath he kicks off the wall, and he goes. And I'm tracking him because I can actually see his shadow beneath the pool cover. And so he's doing well. He goes to the other end of the pool, kicks off, comes back, and he, you know, obviously he shoots up, and he, he comes up right uh, at the end of that pool cover, and he takes his deep breath. <gasps> and I was like, great job, man. He's like, yeah, your turn. I'm like, okay. And so I take my deep breath. I kick off the wall, and I'm off. And I'm swimming. I hit the other end. And I start swimming back, but for some reason, it's taking so much longer for me to make my way back on the return trip. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And um, my chest is given out. And like, you know, when you're underneath water and you want to take a breath, you're like, Ugh, and your chest starts kind of convulsing because you're keeping yourself from bringing in that water. You don't want to do that. That's bad news. And so I'm like trying to hold my breath for as long as I can. And I'm swimming and I'm swimming and I'm swimming. And I'm thinking to myself, if I don't take a breath soon, I'm going to, I'm going to go down. And this was a pretty scary moment. And so the only thing that I could think of to do to save myself was to pop up in the liner and like make a cavity, right? Make a cavity for myself and take a breath. And so I was about to do that. And then suddenly I, I'm thinking, I'm going to just punch up and make this cavity. But suddenly the, the pool cover gives way. It was open above me. And I, and I shoot up and I'm like, 
And then suddenly Jim's standing in front of me, and I'm like, I'm like, after I caught my breath, I said, Jim, like, what, what happened? Why, why was it taking me so long? And he said, well, Jason, on your way there and on your way back, you were making a curved path. You were making your trip longer, and so that's why you were struggling so bad uh, on, on your return trip. And so, I mean, when I shot up, I was thinking, what was I doing wrong? And, of course, he's my buddy. He's my friend. He knew I was in trouble, but he laughed. He was just laughing. He was just laughing at me. And so I essentially was making my swim longer. He had a good laugh about it. And after I kind of cried inside a little bit, I continued. I, I laughed and continued swimming with him. And so this morning, I want you to think of a couple things. Maybe you've never almost drowned in your friend's pool. Maybe you weren't playing a dumb game like me. And, and maybe... Uh, Maybe you have been uh, burned before when you're playing with fire, and maybe you've been in rescue situations before, and then maybe you've trusted in your own strength to get you out like I had done so many times before playing that game. You know, I learned my lesson that morning, and I didn't play man out in a pool again with the pool cover on, but I did play man out with the pool cover off. Have you ever trusted in your own strength to get yourself out of a jam, only to find out that your strength wasn't enough. So this morning, we're going to take a look into a story of one of my favorite childhood Bible heroes. Can you guys guess his name? Samson. Samson. He trusted in his own strength to get him out of numerous jams, but then at the end, his strength, what? It finally failed him. When I was a kid, I loved Samson. I mean, he was by far my favorite Bible hero. And you can obviously think of why. I mean, I was a kid. I was eight years old. And here's this Bible hero in, in, in the Bible, just ginormous. He was big, and he was strong. Many of you know that when I was eight years old, my father passed away. And so when I was that age, my mom brought us to church, and I got saved. And the pastor gave us a children's storybook Bible. How many of you, by a show of hands, actually had one of these? I mean, there's got to be a few. Yeah, yeah. This thing was awesome, and I didn't really read. I had a Precious Moments. How many of you guys have had a Precious Moments Bible? Yeah? I had a, a baby blue one. It was those, like, little cute little figurines, but it was called Precious Moments, and it was quite precious. But I also had a children's storybook Bible. And so this thing was super, I mean, I think I actually made a crease in the glue binding of Samson's uh, story in the picture Bible because I would always crack it open to that spot because it was my favorite. And uh, if you can show that picture uh, this morning of Samson. How many of you guys remember seeing this guy in the storybook Bible? Yeah, Peter's raising his hand. I mean, every time I cracked open the, my children's storybook Bible, I would crack it open to Samson. And this is the guy we're talking about here. I mean, he was my favorite for obvious reasons. I mean, he's ripped. He's, like, jacked. And there's, like, six guys exploding off of him from this one blow of the donkey uh, jawbone. And, I mean, he was incredible. And so I loved Samson. I mean, he had these huge biceps. The guy in the, I mean, he caught and held my attention. He was always getting into fights, right? He was beating people up, and later as I started growing older, I learned that he wasn't actually beating people up. He was killing people. He was murdering them, slaughtering them, slaying them, whatever word you want to use. And so I was shocked and traumatized after I found out that he actually had killed people. But honestly, there's a reason why, why I loved Samson so much. 
But this is the picture, you know, that I always had in my mind when I think of them. This morning, I'd like for you to turn into your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. The scriptures that we're going to be going over this morning are going to be on the, on the projection screen behind me as well. And so the story can actually be found starting at chapter 13. It goes all the way up to uh, chapter 16. And before we dive into our text this morning, I'd like to bring you with me on a flyover of chapters 13 to the middle of chapter 16 uh, to get us, we're basically going to catch ourselves up, uh, up into the life of Samson where we're going to meet him for our key verses, which is near the end of chapter 16. So as we've learned before these past weeks, the book of Judges, it clearly shows us this cyclical pattern, doesn't it? You guys have learned this. We've heard it many times before. And so as a quick refresher, I'm going to go over it real quick. The cycle that the Israelites fall into in the book of Judges is this. Israel first falls into sin and idolatry. And then Israel becomes oppressed by some sort of outside nation, outside people, outside army. So then Israel, you know, desperate, they cry out, for help. They cry out to the Lord. So then God raises up a judge. Israel becomes delivered. And then Israel um, serves the Lord. And then again, this cycle continues. And so we see it over and over and over. Samson is the last major judge in the book of Judges. And with the beginning of the final cycle, we're told that as usual, Israel what? Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what does God do? In verse 1, of chapter 13, it says that the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So again, Israel is enslaved. Become, they become enslaved again and under oppression of a foreign nation. But it's not in someone else's land. It's in their land, the land that God had given to them, that he had promised them. They're in their own land, oppressed by the Philistines. And so Samson, right, He's chosen by God from birth, hand-selected, hand-plucked. God says, I'm going to use this guy. And so the angel tells his parents, tells him that Samson would be a Nazarite from birth. And a Nazarite, you know, I, when I was a kid, I was like, that sounds so weird. You know, what does that even mean? And so a Nazarite vow usually is for a set period of time. It's typically not done from like the birth to the end of a life. It's usually for just a section or a period of their life. And so this was a calling by God in Samson's life. And this wasn't a choice that Samson made. This wasn't like a, hey, I'm going to be a Nazarite. This is like, you're going to be a Nazarite from birth. Actually, he became a Nazarite before he was actually born in his mother's womb. There were special vows that put restrictions on his life. He couldn't eat anything unclean. This might be a review for some of you. He wasn't supposed to cut his hair or touch or be near a dead body. And so in exchange for these vows, right, God gave him what? In exchange for these vows, God gave him strength, great strength, superhuman strength. And so this is interesting. Samson's name, when translated, it actually means little son. And so this gives us a little bit of a glimpse. It gives us a peek into the people that, you know, Samson was in the, in the, in the excuse me, in the Israelites' background. And so little son, back in ancient times, the, uh, the son was considered a deity. It was considered a god. And so these people, you know, around them were worshiping the son. And so Samson gets dubbed little 
son. And so you can get a glimpse here in the Israelites' life. They are adopting and bringing in other deities, other gods. They're welcoming them into their culture, into their covenant with God. And so Israel, we see, had fallen far from the Lord. They had grown so far from him. But God, what? God was still at work through his flawed people. He was still at work from him. Faithful God. So at the start of chapter 14, Samson meets a woman from the Philistines. And who are the Philistines? The enemy of the Israelites, the ones oppressing him. Samson's parents tried to convince him, hey, Samson, hey, son, maybe it's not so wise for you to fall in love with a Philistine woman. She's the enemy. And so his parents kind of were like, hey, maybe you should think this over. But guess what? Samson didn't want to. Samson wanted to do it Samson's way. He wanted to have what he wanted. And so Samson was letting his flesh take over and control him. And even though he was thinking incorrectly, God used his choice to accomplish his plan. And so Samson was basically aligning with the very people that he was supposed to defeat. Against good advice, he goes against this and he says, it says here, Samson marries a Philistine woman. And as you might guess, guess what? It went very terribly. Not a good thing. He ends up in an argument with the Philistines, which resulted in, in him tying 300 foxtails together, lighting a torch, and sending them into the enemy's crops. And so he burns up all the crops of the Philistines, the Bible says. And so what? The Philistines, they retaliate. They retaliate against Samson by burning Samson's wife and her whole household. So she dies, and on top of her death, her parents die. So her whole family's wiped out. We're not told, and so the Philistines, they go back in retaliation. And we're not told how many Philistines that Samson killed after that, but he goes into battle with them because they come after him. And apparently he kills so many, we don't know how many, but it's an impressive amount. And then he what? He runs off to safety. He runs for the hills, and he goes hide, and he goes and hides in the mountain. So the Philistines came to take Samson away by force. And because the men of Israel, they didn't want their country uh, destroyed, uh, they knew that the Philistines were mightier than Israel. And so here's Israel coming to Samson and being like, hey, listen, things are about to go down. We need to do something. And so we want you to give yourself into the Philistines because we don't want anything bad to happen to our people. And so Samson, what? He obliges. He obliges his people, and they let him bind him and take him by hand, and they deliver him into the hands of the Philistines. And so this is what happens after that. When he arrives in the camp of the Philistines, Samson breaks the ropes, and he fights against them. And this time he uses what? We just had showed that picture. He uses the jawbone of a donkey, of a dead donkey. And so I'm thinking to myself when I read this story, I mean, I've obviously read it when I was a kid, but that's just crazy. You're going to kill 1,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, if I was in that situation, I would be kind of looking around, right? We're outside. I mean, there's trees. So there's got to be these huge trunks or branches or something. But he doesn't pick up a, a tree or like a, a bow staff or anything. He picks up a jawbone of a donkey and slays 1,000 Philistines with it. Crazy. And so he kills a thousand Philistines, and before the fight was over, he was dying of thirst, the Bible says. And so God provides water for him. Samson then goes into Gaza, and he meets a prostitute. 
He gets surrounded by Philistines, soldiers, and they want to capture him. And so the soldiers, they say, seal up the gates of the city because they were going to capture Samson. So now they have him surrounded. And so what does Samson do? The Bible says that in the middle of the night, he wakes up. He goes to a gate of a city, puts his hands on it, rips it off the hinges, puts it on his back, and carries it with his shoulders. And he walks up to a hill and escapes. I mean, this is his strength displayed over and over and over in the Bible. And so finally, Samson, we clearly see in Scripture that he's got a woman problem, right? He's a womanizer. Clearly, he was just, at the, uh, just in Gaza with a prostitute. And at the beginning of chapter 16, just a few f- short verses later, we find him in the valley of Sorek with Delilah who was not his wife. Samson is still married, right? Now he's with Delilah, or now he went to a prostitute, and then he goes and meets Delilah. And so he's seen with women over and over and over. He's letting his flesh take over him. And the worst part is that Delilah is a Philistine, again, with the enemy. So the rulers of the Philistines, they they come to Delilah, and each, they said, we're going to promise to pay you 1,100 pieces of silver right? In exchange for the silver, we want you to tell us, find out and then tell us the secret to Samson's strength because we want to capture him. And so guess what? Delilah, she agrees to it. Clearly, she doesn't love Samson. Would you turn in and give over your spouse for 1,100 pieces of silver? The Bible doesn't say how many uh, uh, Philistine leaders we're going to pay her off, but I'm guessing at least a handful, maybe four or five. And so she's maybe walking out of there worth 5,500 pieces of silver to find out Samson's strength and then let them know so that they can capture him. But not only is she using Samson, she's probably using Samson for money, power, you know, security, you know. Samson's well-known. He's famous. And so she's using Samson, but Samson is also using her for her looks and for her desires. And so what does Delilah do? She slowly begins to chip away at him, asking him three times what the secret of his strength was. Then only, the only way that Samson was going to be captured was by him letting go of his strength. And so here is where we pick up for the teaching this morning. This morning we're going to be looking into Judges chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. The first part, first point of my message this morning is our strength, it deceives us. Our strength, it deceives us. Physical strength is deceptive, right? A few years ago, a friend of mine was showing me a video on YouTube of these uh, bodybuilders facing off against CrossFit guys. And this was interesting to me because bodybuilders, you know them as just jacked guys, right? They're just really built. They've got you know, really cut muscles and, you know, their bodies are all like in ratio and stuff. And so you're thinking, well, they're really strong. And that's what I'm thinking. I mean, that's what muscles are for, right? Muscles are for strength. And so these guys lift weights, they rip their muscles, their muscles repair themselves and they build bigger and what? Bigger muscles. And and so the first people that go up to lift weights, they're on the bench press, right? And so one of these bodybuilders, he gets up, they uh, put 225 pounds of weight on the bar and the 
uh, bodybuilders start lifting and doing their reps. They're doing 225 pounds, maybe like 10 to 15 times. I mean, that's still impressive. You know, that's a lot of weight. And so then the CrossFit guy goes onto the bench, and I'm thinking, you know, he's not going to be able to do much, you know. So he gets on there. He's crushing these bodybuilders. This CrossFit guy, he's doing like 15 to 20 reps of 225 pounds, clearly outlifting the bodybuilders. And so, so this shows us strength is deceptive. As Delilah starts her attempt to find out the secret of Samson's great strength, Samson at first lies to Delilah. He throws her off her game. Samson here is trying to protect himself. He's trying to protect the mission. He doesn't want to give up his secret, right? And so he doesn't want to become subdued or overtaken. And we see her from verses 6 through 16. She's being persistent. She's being relentless in her prodding and and nagging. The Bible even says in verse 16, I think I have it up here, it says with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was what? Tired to death. She starts to try his integrity. She's testing him and see if he'll slip up and let the proverbial cat out of the bag about what the secret to his strength was. This morning, I would ask you, what is it in your life that you keep getting nagged about? Is the enemy trying to get you to slip up somewhere so he can gain a foothold in your life? Church, I ask you to be on your guard and sin in your life that you are most defensive about is probably your biggest problem. What is nagging at you? What are you being poked and prodded with in your life? As I reread this story while writing this message, I laughed at myself, you know, because I was reading verses 6 through 16. It reminded me of something. I kept screaming at my, in my head at Samson, don't do it, Samson. Don't give in to her. You'll be sorry. Turn away and just run, man. Just get out of there. This will cost you your life. But sadly, we see in just one verse later, in verse 17, he gives in to her. He's completely deceived, and he spills the beans. It says in verse 17, right here, I got it up here. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head. He continued, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. And I'm thinking to myself, why can't Samson be like Joseph in chapter 39 of Genesis and run like Joseph did from Potiphar's wife? I mean, Potiphar's wife was just as persistent and relentless as Delilah was in what she wanted. Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph, but Joseph being a man of great integrity, what did he do? He ran. He got out of there. And I'm thinking, Samson, why can't you be like that? Your hand's selected by God. God chose you. You walk with him. But you just gave yourself up. You're failing the mission. Samson's strength deceived him. He thought he was more than he was. He thought that he could handle himself on his own in his life like he did many times before. Eventually, we see Samson convincing himself that his hair or his Nazarite vow wasn't the source 
of his strength, right? So he let himself fall asleep on the lap of his wife, Delilah. He let his guard down. I mean, honestly, think about it. What was Samson doing here? How could he let her trap him? He had come to believe that his strength was simply his, right? He thought that his strength was his strength. He thought it was all on me. This is my deal. This is my life. This is my body. It's mine, and I'll do with it what I want. He was becoming deceived, and this was not just self-deception, church. This wasn't just a chemical imbalance in his mind that was going on. These weren't just some maybe, you know, a string of bad choices. This was something deeper than that. Something was going on in Samson's life, and it was deep. Samson wasn't having a psychological issue. He was having a theological issue. He was having trouble in his heart knowing who God was in his life. He was getting beyond the state of cocky and overconfident. Samson was unable to see how dependent he was on God's grace. He had come to see that his strength was a right He was thinking that his strength was a right and not a gift of God's mercy, which it was. Samson's strength was a gift of God's mercy. When we take for granted and start believing in our hearts that what God has freely given to us is rightfully ours, to begin with, we will then start to devalue that gift our hearts will start to become less thankful to God for Christ's sacrifice. And we will begin on the course of living for ourselves, right? And become dispassionate towards grace. Church, I ask of you this morning, will you let your heart not become deceived? Don't let your strength deceive you. You cannot do life on your own. Samson started trusting in his strength more than he trusted in God's strength for him. Our strength deceives us. Point number two this morning, our strength, it fails us. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 16, starting in verse 19, having put him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Verse 20. Then she called Samson. The Philistines are upon you. She said that three times before, right? The Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, here it is. I'll go out as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. How sad is that? In verse 19, Samson's head is shaved and his strength left him. And in verse 20, something strange happens. Samson knows, right, that he has told Delilah the truth. And he must know as he awoke from his sleep that his hair was gone. So he must have been thinking, and this is the key verse here, his head shaved. He's, he's, he's woken up from his sleep, right? And if you had long hair your whole life and you've never cut your hair before, and now suddenly your hair is gone, wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know that your hair is gone? So he knows his hair is gone, right? But 
Samson thinks that his strength is still with him. And he has no idea that God had left him. He knows his hair is gone. But he didn't know that God had left him. He assumed his strength would still be there. And even though his hair was gone, you know, his strength was always with him. His strength was always with him. But why wouldn't it be gone? I mean, think about it. He had been slowly breaking his Nazarite vow. Slowly but surely, we see in his story, in four chapters, ever since he was born and that he was hand-selected by God, he starts immediately breaking his Nazarite vow. The first thing that he did, the Bible talks about, is that he killed a lion with his bare hands. He touched three dead things in the story of Samson. The first two times he touched a lion, first when he killed it, and then the second time when he reaches in the lion's carcass for the honey where, where the bees are. And then he picked up what? He picked up the dead jawbone of a donkey. So he touched three dead things. Not only that, but just a few short chapters before this, we see that Samson throws this huge feast, right? And back then in ancient times, a huge feast means that there's alcohol there. And so most likely, Samson partook of alcohol. Or even, you know, it says that uh, he wasn't to partake of any fruit of the vine, whether it be alcohol or not. And so he wasn't supposed to have alcohol. The vow which he took to be a Nazarite, he was breaking. He didn't hold up his end of the promise. And Samson, right, he was physically strong, but Samson wasn't perfect. And I've got to be honest with you this morning, church, we're not perfect people. We're far from perfect. And it isn't interesting that when we view and read the story of Samson, we're like, what is he thinking? What is going on in his heart? Why is all this happening? He's, given, he's been given the world. You know, he's got status. He's got strength. He's got success. He probably had a lot of money, right? He's not, he's not far from who we are. He's exactly like who we are, right? Church, can we admit that this morning? He's exactly like we are. We're not a perfect people, but guess what? We serve a perfect father. We will fail ourselves. Our strength will fail us. And we will fail each other. And we will fail God, but our God will not fail us. He will never break his promise to you. He will never leave you. When I swam in that pool, underneath that pool cover, I thought to myself, I'll go out as I did so many times before. I was used to the motion of swimming. I was a strong swimmer, but I veered off course and I couldn't find my way out, so I panicked and I thought I would swallow water and drown. But I had someone helping me, my friend Jim Bramhall. He helped me and he helped bring me to safety. This morning, I want to ask you, do you feel like you're drowning? Do you feel like your strength is failing you? I'll tell you this morning that God won't let you drown. And you know what? Even though your strength may fail, our God doesn't grow tired. And our God's strength will not waver. He won't grow tired after lifting you up once, twice, three times, or four times. Our God, every time, will get up, lift you up, dust you off, and guess what? He will carry you. He will carry you. Our strength that fails us. Point number three. Our strength enslaves us. 
chapter 16, verse 21. Now that Samson's strength had left him, he finds himself bound up. He's tied up. He's unable to break free from his captors. And the Bible says in verse 21 that, here it is, then the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes, and they took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. The very grain, just I think a chapter before, that he had set fire to with the foxes, he was now grinding for the people who enslaved him. He was delivering his people from the Philistines, but now he's enslaved by them, grinding their food. You see, Samson wasn't on his guard, and eventually his sin caught up to him. And what he thought was his greatest strength turned out to be his biggest weakness. His weakness, church, was his relationship with the Lord. That's what Samson's weakness was. He never thought that the Lord would leave him. Samson became weak when God had left him. And I mean, honestly, think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. Like, what a devastating feeling that must have been for Samson when he realized God is no longer with me. He's always been with me. He's always been with me. My strength has always been with me. And God has walked with me. And now he's gone. The Lord, the Bible says, stirred inside of him in his youth. He had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. He had experienced God. He knew who God was. He knew that God is victory, that God would deliver him, that he would be with him. He wasn't walking closely with the Lord, though. Samson, we know, wasn't much of a praying man. In fact, we only have two accounts of Samson praying in, two, uh, in four chapters. The first one was when he uh, just got done slaying a thousand men, and he said, are you going to let me die like this, God? Am I going to die of thirst? Give me water, he basically says. He demands, God, give me water. Don't let me die here. I need a drink. So guess what? God obliges, right? But I don't think that God obliged Samson, the man. In my reading and in my study, I honestly think that God was obliging God's promise to Samson. He wasn't obliging Samson. I mean, Samson was demanding, hey, God, give me water. I'm about to die here. No, God was obliging God's promise to Samson to keep him alive. There was a mission. These prayers he prayed are quite telling of the condition of his heart toward God. His prayers here are not humble. They're not faithful. The second prayer that we see Samson pray is towards the end of his story, right? When he's up on the pillars. After Samson is bound, his eyes are gouged out, and so now he's blind. He's a prisoner of the Philistines, and the Philistines bring out Samson to provide, it says, entertainment for them. And the entertainment was basically Samson was going to be made a fool of in front of the Philistines up at the temple on the stage, most likely between the pillars. And so they were going to poke fun at him. They were going to insult him, throw things at him, you know, mock him. So Samson was about to become a mockery. And so he stands, uh, he asks the servant, hey, bring me up. Put me up against these two pillars so I can feel where they are. And so the servant, most likely a young kid, brings him up there. And so Samson, right, he's devising a plan. He's thinking this out. He wants to get revenge on the Philistines one last time, like so many times he did before. 
But this one last time will cost him his life. And so he prays this. He starts out, Sovereign Lord. Here it is. He says, Remember me. Why is he asking God to remember him? Because God had left him. He was no longer with Samson. So Samson says that, Remember me. Remember who I am. Remember me. Samson was alone. How telling of his spiritual condition. He was lost. And so he continues, please God, strengthen me just one more time and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And with that prayer, God answered Samson and allowed him to get revenge. And the Bible here says that he brought down more Philistines in his death than when he did when he was alive. So in just four chapters, we see Samson pray two times, once a prideful, arrogant prayer and one a humble prayer. And it's clear that Samson uses his strength, but it's also clear that he's not depending on God, but only in extreme circumstances. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to you? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'll be the first to raise my hand. Calling out to God in your deepest, most dramatic and tumultuous circumstances, crying out to the Lord. Samson wasn't a humble man. He wasn't bearing fruit of the Spirit. He wasn't a faithful man. He wasn't a man of humility. And wouldn't you think that if somebody was walking closely with God that they would display or show some characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all that sort of stuff? I mean, he didn't, though. And we see it clearly here. His strength was enslaving him. He was bound by his strength. He put his trust in it, and he let it become an idol in his life. And what we idolize and what we behold as ultimate, we become a slave to. He idolized his strength. Tim Keller says this about idolatry. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. And isn't it true for Samson? He idolized his strength, and in doing so, he became enslaved to it. It wrapped its chains around him, figuratively and literally. He was enslaved. Our strength enslaves us. Let's be on our guard against enslavement of our own strength. Let it not bind you up Your strength will never free you. It'll never give you liberty. It'll never be your way out. You may think it is, but it's not. The great problem that we see here in the story of Samson's life is that he has a sin issue. And his sin issue was that he was trusting in his own strength, power, and success to get him out of his problems time and time Again, And at the root of his sin was pride because at the root of all sin is like what Pastor Tom has told us. It's the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. In Samson's sin, he took his God-given strength and used them against God. Paul says at the end of chapter 1 in Romans that the worst thing that God can do is to give us over to our desires, right? To give us over to our desires and desires like maybe success and strength. And isn't it true that a lot of successful people are the ones farthest from God? Can you think of maybe a few, not naming any names, but don't you think it's true that 
successful people are the most far from God. And this was certainly the case for Samson. When we trust in our own strength, as Samson did, we are nothing but weaklings. When we trust in our own strength, as Samson did, we are nothing but weaklings. Samson was a strong weakling. He was completely helpless, right? And we are completely helpless, but yet we try unsuccessfully to get back up and dust ourselves off and go on it on our own, go on an adventure, be on our own, do everything on our own strength, in our own power, right? Using our hands, using our mind, trying to figure things out on our own. And the story of Samson begins with a strong man, right? Who then becomes weak. But it ends with a weak man who is stronger than he'd ever been before. Does that remind you of anyone? It should. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Jesus became weak to become strong. And with Samson, it ended with Samson dying under that crushing blow of the temple falling on top of him and then burying him. And that's when Samson's story ends, when he gets buried. But with Jesus, he was buried, and his story was just beginning. Amen? He rose again. Jesus rules beyond the grave. He defeated death and defeated the enemy. The one who became weak to save us by dying for us and raising to life again is the one who was strong and who will reign in power and strength forever. Forever he will reign, strong and victorious. With Samson's death, he's destroyed his enemies, right? He destroys his enemies, but with Jesus, he restores them to save his enemies. Jesus is the greater Samson, the deliverer we really needed. Samson may have been the deliverer that the Israelites deserved, but he wasn't the deliverer that the Israelites needed. That's Jesus. We need Jesus. We need our deliverer. Many of you know that back in uh, November, I lost a job. It was in a career in industry that I thought I felt like I was going to be at for quite some time. And up until that point, I had never been released or let go from a job. And so I took much pride in that. But I was laid off, and as most men do, we find our security in our strength in our jobs. We find our identity in our careers in our jobs. And so having pride in what you do is fine, and what your career is and your work, that's fine. It's not a sin. It's good to take pride in your quality of work because it's worship unto God. God gives us work. He gives us this gift of work so that we can provide for our families. It's provision. But I struggled with being let go from what I was doing, and and half of me, my first response was, okay, God, okay, I'm going to go with you. Let's do this. I'm going with you. And the, the other half of me was experiencing resentment. I had a lot of resentment. I was taking it personally, and I, I felt weak. I felt like giving up. I felt helpless. 
And just before that, I was feeling strong. I was even keeled. I was putting my nose to the grindstone. I was in control. And when God started revealing to me was this. He started revealing to me that I needed to become weak. I felt strong in my career. Pastor Vicki and I's financial needs were being met. Bills were being paid. God was providing. But what God gave freely, God also freely took away. He was teaching my wife and I that we needed to fully rely on his plan and his promise for our lives. Because in his, in our weakness, he is strong and we have been always okay with that. He will always be in our lives. His will is what we want for our lives and it's not his. It's not ours, but it's his and it's always been his.